Hello, hello. Welcome to the Fitness Simplified Podcast. This is episode 25. I'm your host, Kim Schlag, and on today's episode, I talk with Dr. Lisa Lewis. Lisa is a licensed psychologist and certified addictions counselor with background in exercise psychology. And Lisa and I take a deep dive into negative thinking. We talk about how negative thinking is holding you back from reaching your goals. We talk about all different kinds of negative thinking and strategies for you to tame it. Let's go. Lisa, hello. Hi. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Fitness Simplified Podcast. I'm thrilled to have you. I'm happy to be here. So, Dr. Lisa Lewis, Lisa, please introduce yourself. Okay. Well, as you mentioned, my name is Lisa. I'm a licensed psychologist and I'm a certified addictions counselor. Um, so I'm a therapist by trade and um, my uh, doctoral work, my doctoral dissertation was on exercise motivation and I have specialty in sports psychology. So um, I have these two loves, which are doing psychotherapy and helping people to make change in their lives. And then also I love strength training and fitness and physical activity in general, um, and in particular motivation for those activities. So that is me and my passions. Um, and I love to talk about them. So I'm happy to be here. Sweet. Well, then we're especially happy to have you here. So I have to tell you, I've been stalking you a bit on Instagram in the past few weeks uh, (laughs) in preparation for this interview. And I saw a post you did about how you've taught spin classes for a long time now. Mm and that you've had to cut back significantly um, because of a nagging injury. And I actually, I want to quote you here because you use a really cool word that I'm fully intent on stealing and using in my vocabulary. So you talk about how you had to cut back and that you were sad and you were bummed. And then you've chosen to quote, reframe negative feelings, focus on the one class I still have the chance to teach and then rock the shiznit out of it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm totally going to use that word. So tell me about that. How did that reframe help you? How was it? What was the impact? Well, I think it's important to feel your feelings, but then also to move forward at the same time. And so I had been putting off or, or avoiding letting go of some spinning classes for a long time, which was of course just perpetuating the pain that I was in. And so I knew there would be some grief. And so I don't want to close the door on the grief, but I also want to be able to move forward. And so reframing for me just means how can I think differently about what I'm experiencing to include all of the benefits and the drawbacks of it? Um, Because it's normal and human to have good feelings and bad feelings at the same time and to be positive and negative at the same time. Um, And so I think that inner athlete in me feels good thinking about other opportunities that might come up and the opportunity to really perform well, um, and to really have an optimal experience that once a week opportunity that I have. And when I say those words to you now, and when I think about those sentiments, I feel energized, I feel happy, I feel optimistic. Um, and it's important that that's woven in, even if there is sadness and grief. Uh, yeah. but sometimes when we're bummed, we need to, you know, intentionally create those, those moments of optimism, we need to intentionally weave in the positive reframe there. So do you think negativity is a natural human tendency? 
It is natural human tendency and we have a tendency, we're biased towards focusing on the negative. And really what theorists say is that this comes from, you know, our, our desire to survive and to protect ourselves and to stay safe. So if we're watching out for bad things or if we're keeping those negative things in mind, we're more likely to defend ourselves and protect ourselves. But at the same time, it can bring us down. Um, and because we're always focused on the negativity. So we actually need to make concerted efforts to remember the positive and to focus on those at times. So it actually serves a purpose, which is why we have that tendency. But if we're overly negative, then we have, you know, results that we're not looking for. That's so, right. So what can people do then? What do we do so that we're not knowing that we, we're going to have this natural tendency? I think it really varies person to person how much of that negativity, like, is, is there, though we all have it to some degree. Um, what should a person do if they're like, you know, I, I see that I'm, I tend more towards the negative. Like, what mm. can I do to actively combat that? Yeah, and I like that point you're bringing up because there is a spectrum of how negatively we think. You know, I mean, there's people who just kind of block it out and then there's people who are so negative that they're always mm. finding that. And, and actually that that can be pathological when people are really, really, really focused on negativity they could actually be depressed. And so that's all they see because they're kind of cognitively limited, but most of us fall somewhere in the middle there. And yeah. so if you're noticing negative tendency, or if you're just noticing that focusing on the negative is keeping you from your goals or keeping you from enjoying your life or getting in the way, then you want to be able to intervene on that. Um, and you want to be able to add something, um, which means using your intention, um, either using goal setting or using something like a gratitude journal where you're literally writing down four or five things every day that you're grateful for, or that you are adding some kind of exercise into your life that helps you to see the other side of it, to see the positive side. So for example, my best friend has a five-year-old and we were recently having dinner together and they have a ritual they do every night called high, low Buffalo at the dinner table. So they say one of the highlights of the days, one of the lowlights of the days, and then Buffalo is like something random, like just anything you want to tell. <laughs> I love that. Uh, yeah. And so I, what I like about that is the duality. Like in life, good stuff happens, bad stuff happens. Um, and let's share that and talk about that together. So I think it's an intentional way of reminding the family to not only to identify those things, but also to talk about them with others. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I think it's important because sometimes when we make a decision, okay, we're going to be more, we're going to have more positivity. It can be really tempting to like not ever let ourselves like think that it's okay to have bad things happening to us or to feel like upset or sad, you know, and I certainly know people who, um, never ever say anything negative. And sometimes I'm thinking like, do you really feel that way? Like does, does yeah. nothing ever happen to you that makes you think like, well, that just sucks. <laughs> because, you know, I certainly think of myself as a fairly positive person, but gosh, mm -hmm. negative stuff happens all the time and acknowledging it and being able to say like, yeah, this wasn't the greatest thing that happened today. I think mm -hmm. for me, it actually is helpful just to kind of verbalize it and be like, all right, well, that's not the end of the world, but this, this thing happened, you know, or I felt this yeah. way today. And what you're bringing up reminds me of this idea of balance. I think that often when I work with individuals and they identify balance as a, a goal, they think of it as something that you achieve, like 
nirvana or like when you get in a pose and you just hold it. And I actually don't think that life balance works that way. I think it's much more like surfing that you're Mm -hmm. constantly adjusting where your feet are and moving your body and that it is a dynamic process to be in balance. So sometimes there's negative and sometimes there's positive and sometimes you're active and sometimes you're passive and sometimes you're defending and sometimes you're getting after it, but that you're always constantly making adjustments and you're engaged. And I, when you think about balance that way, it allows for positivity and negativity and, and times when you're pursuing your goals and times when you're taking a rest and it really allows for humanity, but requires that you are ready and present for your life. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of my listeners are people who are looking to lose weight or build muscle or get stronger. And all of these are things that involve struggle. They take a long time, patience, persistence, Mm -hmm. you know, they require people having that ability to persist. And it's interesting to me to think about how negativity can keep people from persisting. What do you think about that? Yeah. So negativity can certainly get in the way of people feeling like change is possible. Mm. And so you can see the protective factors that negativity has. Like if I don't think I can ever actually lose the weight, then that prevents me from trying and being let down or that prevents me from achieving that and then seeing what my life would actually be like, or what problems would that actually solve if I were 10 pounds lighter? Um, So the negativity can sometimes have this surreptitious protective factor in it. Yeah. um, That it just helps people to not feel whatever it would feel like to actually have success um, or just kind of protect them from their own, the possibility of failing, whatever that means to them. Um, And so it's normal to need a little bit of unpacking that or being able to talk that out, whatever that negativity is, whether that's to a friend or someone who's a professional, um, in order just to kind of like, I think about it like as checking the math, like just checking whether your own thoughts are rational and in, in the service of your goals, or if there's something that's like self-destructive or just keeping you from getting out of your own way. I like that idea of like, is our thought actually like a fact? Is it something we're just feeling? Is it, is it even true? Mm-hmm. You know, so that's confusing feelings for facts uh, is something common. And if it's just swirling around in your mind and you're thinking it, you might never have the opportunity to like check it out and, and notice its validity. We really, we really are able to check out our own thoughts by talking, by processing with another person. And not that the other person has the answer, but just even sometimes I, I will often hear clients say, I never even realized that I thought that until I just said that out loud. It sounds ridiculous saying it out loud to you but it was in there. You know what I mean? Yeah. So when they show their work, when they unpack it, it can be, it really can be helpful to uncover some, some patterns of thinking that are not in the service of your goals and that actually you don't believe once you really say them out loud. So for a person who's not working with a coach or a therapist or, yeah. or something like that, would it be a useful practice then when they notice a negative thought like that to say it out loud? Yeah. Would, would that be something that would be like kind of if they're not going to talk to another person about it, to just say it? Well, always the other person is the best. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah, because we're social creatures and we are designed to help regulate our emotions and our emotional life through relationship with others. So um, that is really the way that we are supposed to be. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So there are practices like journaling that, that can be helpful. I still think the gold standard is talking to someone else, whether that's a friend or, or a professional. Saying it out loud, like talking to yourself, you could do that. I still think that is probably runs, runs maybe third to writing it down or saying it to someone else. Or saying it to someone else. Okay. So having just a person to talk to, even, yes. if you're, even if it's not a professional, even if it's just a friend saying like, hey, like, let's just talk about, let's just talk about our stuff. You got it. Sigmund Freud famously wrote, if you have a best friend, you do not need psychoanalysis. <laughs> And what he was getting after there was like, if you're able to just kind of talk, think out loud and, and process your emotional life and what you're feeling and what you're thinking, that is really the heart of what a lot of therapies are. Um, And so, you know, if you've got a friend or a trusted confidant in the world, like utilize that to talk about the things that might be getting in your way. Yeah. So there's lots of different kinds of negative thinking, and, and these are things that I see a lot in the in the women that I coach. I'm just going to bring a couple of them up to you, and yes. maybe you can kind of talk us through some of these things and what it is and what we can do about it. Mm-hmm. So how about um, catastrophizing? So catastrophizing is experiencing one thing that happens as being the end of the whole thing, and now it's all blown up and it's destroyed and there's no return, you know, it was Armageddon. So the, the most common theme I see, and I'm curious to hear your example too, but the most common thing I will hear is like, you know, I brought my salad for lunch and then they ordered pizza at the office and I had three slices of pizza. So now, you know, I've destroyed the whole entire week and I've been eating McDonald's since then because it's too late now, you know, I totally lost it. And as opposed to being like, okay, I had a very, I had a high caloric density lunch, <laughs> you know, I'm going to wait for hunger before I have dinner, or I'm going to listen to my hunger signals um, before I have my next meal. And I'm going to make my next meal one that's really nourishing. That's going to make me feel good. Um, so instead of thinking that way, they just think that they've blown it up and there's no return. And so instead of doing that, mm-hmm. what should they do? Because you hit the, the kind of things that I'm talking about exactly. Um, okay. you know, all those exact same things or, you know, adding on like, you know, it was Friday night and I went out and I just really shot the moon. I ate everything you can think of. And so mm-hmm. I've totally blown it. Or, you know, I just sat here and ate all of my kids' leftovers and I wasn't supposed to do that. And but the day <laughs> is shot, you know, like so many examples. The um, mommy Zamboni. The mommy Zamboni. <laughs> I didn't know about that kind of... <laughs> behavior until I myself became a mommy, but the mommy Zamboni is a tricky, it is sneaky little, it takes practice to not do that. (laughs) It does, doesn't it? And so I, what you just said, I think is a a really good skill. Like you said, it takes practice to, to work on that. And one of the ways to reframe all kinds of negative thinking, and in addition to catastrophizing is to think of your experiences, not as being bad or good, but as being information. So you have like, I went out, you know, to dinner with my friends and I, like you said, I shot the moon and I ate everything. Okay. Like, let's talk about that. What were the conditions that led up to that? Let's look at the data. So maybe, you know, maybe she had five celery sticks for lunch. And so she was a little bit too hungry, or maybe she had two drinks before she ate anything. And so she was disinhibited and a little tipsy. And so she ate, just ate more. Um, 
or, you know, maybe she was an ex-boyfriend was going to be at the, at the get together and she was anxious about that. So there's a way to, instead of looking at it and judging it and criticizing it, let's remove that because there's nothing helpful about that. And let's look at the data to see what can we learn so that next time you can make different choices and have a different experience. I um, love that. I love looking at that and looking at things as data, looking at things from a, a perspective of curiosity versus judgment yeah. and seeing what can I learn for next time. Yeah. Anytime I hear somebody like talking about a behavior and then using that to make a judgment about their like character or their value or their goodness or badness of a person, um, that is, there is nothing fruitful from that. Mm-hmm. There, there you have nothing to gain. Like what if we talk about the situation and we go, yeah, like you're a terrible person. Then what? I mean, there's, there's, yeah. no, there's no way to like actually move towards the goal. So, yeah. so whether or not that's true, there's, it's totally unproductive. Even if we were like, oh, you're a fabulous person because you ate three celery sticks, that doesn't really lead us down a path of anything that's going to be helpful. Right. So looking at it as just data and, and, and sort of taking the emotions back out of it can help you to make different decisions or decide what it is you want to do next time. I think the, the mommy Zamboni example, I really like because it's one of those things you don't notice you do until after you've done it. Mm-hmm. And, um, I've actually done things in my own life with my own two-year-old where I will, um, put a little bit less on my plate and put you know, some of my serving on his plate. So if he eats it, awesome. Like I can go have a little more, but if he doesn't eat it and I eat yeah. his piece of chicken, fine. Or I eat his whatever, you know, whatever else is on his tray. So looking at it as information has been much more fruitful in terms of helping me manage my behaviors than just deciding like, you know, I'm, I stink and I'm, I'm ruining my meal because, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, because I got after his tray after (laughs) or whatever. It's such a helpful perspective shift. I really like that. Okay. Let's talk about another one. What about shoulds? What about shooting on yourself? Yeah. Shooting on yourself. So um, these are easy to spot because people will use the word should and it will be something that sounds like punitive or, or like something made up. So for example, I should be, I should have lost 10 pounds by now. I've been doing this for three months. I should be a size six because that's what I was my senior year in high school. Um, I should be able to do a body weight pull up you know, because X, Y, and Z. So when you hear the should, the person is holding this as like, this is real. This is a fact. It's not a feeling. This is a rule. And by me not meeting the standard or, or abiding by this rule, I'm bad. So the should is typically accompanied by embarrassment, shame, guilt, negative self-esteem, something that is not helpful or productive. Um, and shoulds, the idea of shoulds comes from this old school psychologist, um, whose name was Albert Ellis. He was responsible for, um, rational emotive therapy, which was sort of like before cognitive behavioral therapy. And he would actually get patients up on stage and talk to them about their anxieties and their issues in life, um, in front of an audience of people in Manhattan back in the seventies, he would do this. And so he'd be talking to people about like what's going on in their life and, um, eventually the, the, the patient, the participant would say something like, 
well, I should go over to my parents' house every Sunday for dinner. Like that's just what a good daughter should do. And he would be like, who told you that? Like, where did you learn that? Is that, what book is that written in? And, and so he would just try to uproot it. Is that really a rule? Is it like, who said you need to lose 10 pounds? Where, who told you that? Did the primary care doctor tell you that? Or did, um, you know, who says you should be a size six? Wasn't that 15 years ago you were a size six? Um, just to try to see if you can get a little separation between the should and the person. Um, and just to explore why they think that is a thing. Um, because often the should is just making them participate in behaviors that are unhealthy or that make them feel bad. Um, or it's just, it's just not healthy. So like wanting to lose 10 pounds when you really don't maybe need to lose 10 pounds, or maybe you just had a baby two months ago or whatever else, you know, you're recovering from an injury. Um, it, it just may, may not be in the service of ultimately what you want to achieve at that time. And so this would be another good opportunity like we're talking to somebody could really help like noticing when you say those shoulds and calling yourself out on them and talking through them with another person and asking yourself these questions like, wait a minute, I should. Well, why do I think I should? Who told me I should? Is that oh. even, is that even what I want? Like, yeah. I think maybe we don't even think about that. We don't even no. take it that step farther. I agree. I agree. I think we make a lot of decisions kind of covertly, you know, uh, even unconsciously. And then we just start believing that. So I think you're making a great point, which is you may not even know you have a should or why you have the should you have um, until you're talking out loud about it, which is why I yeah. think it's, it's great to have goals and to unpack those goals. So if you're working with clients and they have this goal and like, tell me more about that goal. Why is that a goal that you have? It can be really fruitful because it can help you to learn more if maybe that's their named goal, but they might have something different in mind. Like maybe they think I was the happiest I ever was in my whole life when I was a size six. So that's why. And that's why. Yeah. And that's why. So actually the goal is to be happy, but they are thinking. And it's so paired that they think that that's the same thing. Right. In reality, like the fact that they were happy and that they were size six might not have anything to do with each other. No. They might just have happened at the same time. Right. That's exactly right. So interesting. All right, let's hit one more here. Um, okay. One more type of negative thinking. Black and white thinking. Tell us mm. about that. So black and white thinking is like all or nothing thinking. So I'm either being good or I'm being bad. I'm either fat or I'm thin. Um, and it is, it, it just doesn't leave any room for gray, which is about 97% of life. <laughs> yeah. Gray. Yeah. And particularly, you know, we were talking about balance earlier, that balance is this constant dynamic process. It's not like you achieve balance and then you have it all. And then if you get out of whack, it's nothing. It's not that. Um, so just not allowing for subtleties in life. You know, I have to, sometimes I hear this kind of stuff from people who have perfectionistic tendencies. So in my private practice, some of the people I work with are athletes if they don't get all their mileage in, you know, if they're runners and they don't hit all of their mileage and get all of their runs in that week, then they've, then they've had a horrible week. Or um, I have a, a couple power lifters, if they don't, you know, hit their numbers or if they miss one of their lifts, um, even if they still made all, you know, made at least one lift in each one of their categories of, of um, competition, that like somehow that was a failure. So 
the idea that like imperfection is failure is what all or nothing thinking mm-hmm. is. And do you think for a, a lot of situations that it's just uncomfortable to be in the gray, like that, you know, it feels more comfortable to like be all in or all out or to just have an answer, even if it's not the right answer, just, you know, that it just feels uncomfortable to, to be in gray? Like what, what is, why do people so often tend towards black and white thinking? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think there's something about being perfect that feels safe. Like mm. if I could just nail it and get a hundred, then I'm good. Then I'm, then I'm all set, then I'm okay. Um, and that things being unfinished or things being imperfect uh-huh. or showing that you're vulnerable and that you're actually a human being is uncomfortable. And yeah. in my experience, the more high achieving a person is, the more of that perfectionism they have inside of them, the harder it is to tolerate any signs of vulnerability or opportunities for growth. You know, they just want to get to that achievement place. Yes. Um, and then, and then be all set and, and be yes. free from criticism or doubt or whatever the other things are that make them feel unsafe. Yeah. I know when working with, with women who are trying to lose weight, it's mm-hmm. a big hurdle to get past. They have so often um, yo-yo dieted. And so when they were dieting, they were on, right? So that they were in it and they did it. And then at some point the they flipped that switch and they were off. And so they yes. were back to kind of this, these old eating patterns that didn't serve them well yes. until such point that they got to the point where they're like, oh, wait, I'm going to go back on. So it's kind of like this toggle and they're in or they're out. And so trying to help them live in the middle there where we're not on all in and we're not all out. You know, we're trying to like live and we can eat pizza and lose weight. It's a really big um, switch for people. It's a tough sell. It is. It's, it's when they finally like they make don't it. Believe it. Oh, that's when they finally it. Make it. That's yeah. it. They don't. That's what it is. You that's have to convince is. them that that is a thing because yes. all that they've known their whole life is I'm either on and I'm good and I'm and doing I'm quiet mm-hmm. and I'm de- you know and I'm deprived and I'm working and I'm exerting willpower or I'm being bad and I'm, and I'm lazy and I'm lazy and I'm no good and I'm fat. And I've lost, you know, and, and both of those mindsets are terrible. Yeah. Both of them, you're not, um, taking good care of yourself. Both of them, there's like, you're not practicing believing in yourself and both of them, you're not in touch with your own intuition about when you're hungry, what you're hungry for. Um, and so it just creates this loop where at both ends of the spectrum, you are completely out of touch with what you need and what you want and what would make you feel good. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I think it is, I think it is truly one of the most negative things, particularly with females um, in our culture and many others that you just see over and over and over again. Yeah. And I think, actually, I don't think I know because I live this every day, that mm-hmm. when, 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 we, when we can get to the point or we can break ourselves from that all or nothing mm-hmm. um, mentality and be really successful, it's a really good feeling, but it takes so much practice. I keep, I keep coming back to the word practice. It takes so much practice to get there and kind of, I, I've yet to work with anybody who just is like, okay, yeah, I totally see what you're, what you're saying. Mm-hmm. I can do that. Mm-hmm. It takes a lot of times, it takes a lot of weekends of kind of going back to the like, wait, I'm all out and, you know, kind of messing up. I'm putting that in air quotes because they're not really messing up. It's just part yeah. of the process yeah. until they can kind of ease into like, this is working. Like 
I tried it and I, you know, I did it for this short period of time and I like how that felt and I am making progress. Um, mm-hmm. I think the other right, thing it takes, it, the, there's two other things I want to point out is it takes time. Yeah. So when they yo-yo diet and they go into mega deprivation and they see the scale move three pounds in one week, it just fuels the fire as opposed to seeing one pound come off after a month of, you know, intuitive kind of normal, healthy eating. So getting the buy-in is harder because it takes longer time. And then the second thing that you're alluding to, but I just want to point out overtly is the relationship that they have with you because they're able to talk about, beat themselves up and talk about the lows and then review with you the highs and, and share that experience and talk that through. And then for you to be this point of faith and consistency, like you're doing the right thing. I hear you have some doubts. I want you to keep practicing your habits. You know, you've done the yo-yo dieting in the past. I want you to stick with what you're doing now. And really that that supportive relationship helps them to persist, even though they're not seeing all these really sexy, immediate benefits and to help them basically learn how to eat in a healthy way over time. Yeah. And I think you're right that, that, um, having a coach to help do that really is invaluable. Otherwise it's hard. It's hard to stick through it because you kind of need somebody there telling you you're doing okay and that you've got this. Because the way that many women have been socialized is not that way. Unfortunately, a lot of us did not have moms or other women in our life who were teaching us how to use our own hunger signals as cues for when to eat and when to stop. And a lot of us were just filled up with messages about being slim or dieting or eating good and bad. And so that this relationship with the nutrition coach is really an opportunity to, to develop healthy eating habits with the relationship really serving as a guide and kind of a foundation that was probably missing at some other earlier point in life. Absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Let's switch gears here Uh uh, a little bit. I know you've done a lot of study and work in the area of motivation. Mm -hmm. That's my jam. That's your jam. (laughs) So talk to us a little bit about that. Um, Kind of sticking with the realm I've been talking about, about wanting to lose weight or build muscle, kind of body composition. Um, What about, I, I have to tell you, I get this in my DMs like nonstop. I'm not feeling motivated. How can I get motivated? What should I do when I'm not feeling motivated? So I guess my question is, what do you think the role of motivation is in something like a weight loss pursuit? Mm-hmm. Well, motivation is always foundational to getting people to make change in their lives. It is this internal force which drives behavior and keeps it persistent or if you lose it, makes it stop. So we need that juice. Um, and I think sometimes people think they're motivated or they're not, it's on or it's off. And really, um, that's not entirely accurate. There, there is a range of ways that we are motivated. Um, and the, the way to think about it is that motivation exists along a continuum or along a spectrum from engaging in behaviors and feeling controlled, um, or engaging in them of your own free will and autonomously and intrinsically. So if you think about like intrinsic motivation, which often is sort of like the gold standard, what people really want is like, I just want it and I feel it and I'm in it and I do it because it's naturally rewarding. And I think sometimes when people are saying I'm not motivated, they mean that like I'm not feeling it, Yeah. which when we talk about exercise and nutrition, 
there's going to be plenty of times when you're not feeling it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yes, even if you really love it, even if you yes, really love it, even if you really love it, there are going to be days and times where you're not feeling it, where it's not just automatically rewarding and doesn't bring joy and happiness to your life. Yeah. And that is perfectly fine. There are a number of other ways that you could be motivated. So for example, if a client is DMing you and is saying, I'm not motivated, I need motivation, I need motivation. That to me is like, well, you're messaging me and you're a client of mine and you're telling me you really need motivation. So like you're driven by something to write to me and to say this and to feel this ambivalent feeling that you have. There's energy in there that wants to move towards healthy behaviors. Let's check out what that is. Let's check out what that energy is because the energy might be, um, I'm not really feeling like exercising, but there's a history of heart disease in my family and I want to take really good care of my cardiovascular health so that I can run around in the backyard with my grandkids and so that I can change this pattern of health in my family. So maybe they're not intrinsically motivated, but they identify the outcome of exercise and healthy nutrition as being personally meaningful. And that identified regulation is a type of, yes, it's external motivation, but it can drive and persist your behavior. So, so could you say like, yeah, I'm not really feeling it, but... I do want to be running around with my grandkids in the backyard. And I do, you know, I do not want to have a heart attack when I'm 50 years old, like every other man in my family or every other woman in my family. And that that might be the kind of motivation. Some people, you know, they start out with a motivation like I have my high school reunion coming up in three months. And there's nothing wrong with that. If that gets you up into the gym, mm -hmm. I, you know, fine. Because that gets you engaged in the behavior. And then once you've done your workout and you've, eaten in a way that makes you feel good. Then the next day you say like, I'm proud that I did that. Like, I think I'm kind of a badass that even though I was tired and I really wanted to eat nachos, I made <laughs> different choices. And then that feeling of self-esteem makes you feel like, you know, like I'm really doing this. And it brings on this sense of autonomy and, and that brings on a different kind of motivation. So motivation exists along a continuum. And motivation develops, like you can grow it. So even if you start at this place that's very external or very, sometimes people will describe it as being superficial, that's mm -hmm. fine because you can always take it and move forward from there. So I think it's important to have like an arsenal of motivation because some days you're going to want to go because it feels good. Some days you're going to not want to go, but you identify the outcomes as being meaningful and sometimes you're not going to feel like it, but you want to go out for Italian on date night. And so you're going to go to the gym just to like earn your pasta or whatever. And if you put all those motivations together and the, and the end result is that you exercise three times a week, 52 weeks out of the year, success, you have persistent habit of physical activity um, or persistent habits of nutrition, whatever your goals are. And that is, as we all know, that is what's going to result in success. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I really like the fact that you pointed out. So if these people are even DMing me saying, I don't have motivation, that they have some motivation. These are typically not clients. These are typically just people uh, in my, you know, people who, fo who follow me on Instagram. But it's really an interesting point. Like just the fact that they're reaching out to somebody and saying, yeah. I, don't I don't feel motivated. Like there's something there. Yeah. You know, you're I'm DMing like, me. So you're yeah. motivated. Like if the they blue, were not just, motivated, they would not be following you on Instagram. Yeah. They would, not be, they would not be DMing you. Yeah. They would not be expressing frustration. 
yeah. would be perfectly fine with them to sit on the couch and watch Netflix because they wouldn't have motivation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So for times when people just aren't feeling it, even so like we're saying, okay, they do have it. Talk to me a little bit about willpower. So it, I used to read that willpower was a finite resource, that the research mm -hmm. said willpower was a finite resource. And then I thought mm -hmm. I'd read more recently that, that that's not necessarily so. Is that, do you know, is willpower like, do we only have a certain amount, like when we wake up in the morning, we only have a certain amount of willpower. We need to like conserve it throughout the day so mm -hmm. that we can, we can um, get, get what we need to get done, done. Yeah. I think that there's a range of how much willpower individuals have that can depend on how much perfectionism there is, how, how many other aspects of their life where they don't need to use willpower. Kind of sometimes the personality comes into that, but mm -hmm. willpower is a resource, it is a tool, um, it is an energy supply that can either be full or can be empty. And so if you are utilizing it, just like any other energy, you know, it can get smaller. <laughs> um, some days it can feel pretty easy and then other days it can feel pretty hard. And it is one tool. So you need more than one tool in the toolbox because if you have one tool in the toolbox and it's a hammer, every single thing starts looking like a nail, right? Yeah. <laughs> so if you're, if, you're, if you're constantly in a caloric deficit and every single day, two meals a day, you're at work and you're saying, no, 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 no. Um, instead of like bringing in your own fabulous things or eating the lunch that they bring in on Fridays or asking them to make a special order so that you can have something that's like not going to, you know, blow your macros out of the water, but still it's something special and nice. If you're not using other tools and you're always relying on the willpower, you're eventually going to run out. Mm -hmm. um, and it's it, eventually you're going to need something other than a hammer um, to work with it. And so one example I think of is like when you're just plain hungry and there's just pizza, like sometimes in life there's just pizza. <laughs> and like, rather than like feel horrible about it or not eat it or eat like seven slices, be like, okay, there's just pizza. There's no other options for me. It's going to be delicious. Why don't I just like enjoy a slice, see how I feel, check in with my hunger, relish every single bite. And if I, if I want another slice, I'm going to have it. And if I don't, I'm going to get up, fill up my glass of water and go start talking to George on the other side of the room. You know what I mean? Yeah. Those are coping skills. Those are, let me see what other tools I have in the toolbox to deal with the situation rather than, okay, I'm just going to like white knuckle because pizza is the devil. Kind yeah. Of thing. yeah. And I think it kind of comes back to what we were talking about just a little bit ago about that black and white thinking, like here's mm -hmm. pizza and I'm either eating pizza, like I'm all in. You know, and I think it also comes to the, the, the fact that we, we tell ourselves lots of different stories about ourselves. And so mm. maybe one of the things we tell ourselves is like, I can't control myself around pizza. Like yes. I, I don't, I, I can't, yes. you know, those and stories are so powerful. And what They're if so we powerful. just were hungry and had a slice of pizza, like a slice? Yeah. No. And like one of the ways that I'll talk to clients about that is like, why don't we do an experiment? Why don't we see like, why don't we just suspend that judgment that you're a person who cannot control herself, go into the situation, eat a slice of pizza, check in with your hunger signals, 
and then make a choice and just see how it goes. And so you're just, you're just encouraging them to take an opportunity to do it, do it different. And I, and I will often say like, is that a story you're telling yourself? So I think it's important too, because sometimes people can be like, Ooh, maybe it is, you know, and then that kind of might motivate them to try something else out that's different. Yeah, that's a really powerful question because I think people, when I ask people, they're like, what are you talking about? That's just what I, that is. Like, that yeah. is. Like, I am a person who doesn't, like, I overeat pizza, you know? And so when you question people about that, it's, it's a really interesting moment for them to think, like, wait a minute. Does this not have to be? Yeah. You know? <laughs> it's, it is a powerful moment. Yeah. Okay. Um, so let's see. I'm going to double check the time here. All right, I'm gonna totally flip the subject again. I want to talk okay. about it personally. I always like when I have a woman on who likes to strength train. You know, I really like to encourage women about getting strong. It's not yeah. something that some women come to me and like that's part of what they want. A lot of women come to me and they don't know that that's something that they're interested in yet. Mm -hmm. And so I always like to expose them to other women who are super jazzed about strength training. So um, mm -hmm. when did you start strength training? You know, that is a hard question because my father was really into strength training and he had this little gym at home. He had this um, thing called a Soloflex, which um, women who are not into strength training might not know about, but like back in the eighties, it was this fabulous thing. So he had this little home gym and I would say probably from the time I was in kindergarten, first grade, second grade, you know, I would be playing and then I would run into the room and say like, I want to do that too. And my father would always, I, I can't imagine the modifications that he would make, but somehow he would like <laughs> let me get in a set with him or show me something. And he was always like reading fitness magazines and uh, there was always like muscle and fitness around. And sometimes if there were like bodybuilding competitions on, he would like put it on. So I was exposed to that from a very early age. And from a very early age, my father would say things to me like, you are so strong. Like you are so good at this. And so I think I was given a gift that most women don't get, which is to be exposed and have an education about strength training and to get that message that this, like I can do it and I'm good at it and this is me. And so when I was about 16 years old, I started strength training for sport. I was very involved in sports. And so around that age, it started to be a thing to like work out, you know, as an adjunct to whatever you were doing with your team. So at that point, I had no fears or intimidation about going into the gym, which I realize a lot of women don't have the benefit of because I had just been kind of around that always. Mm -hmm. And then when I went to college, I just played one sport, which in high school I had played all, all the time. And so when I finished the fall sport, it was the first time in my life that I hadn't had a physical activity to do after what was your school. Sport, Lisa? I played volleyball in college. Okay. So come like November, I was done with sport for the first time in like, you know, 15 years or whatever. And when that happened, then I really became more interested in strength training for its own sake, for lifting weights and like, how can I learn more about this? And what should my routines be mm -hmm. if they're not like in the service or as an adjunct to the sport that I'm playing right then and there? So that, that would have been like age 18 or 19 that it really um it really became more of kind of my everyday life and what do you like about it i like a lot of things about strength training i'm a person who's pretty organized and i like structure and so I, this just the sport of like what lifting weights is is 
I can put my headphones on and put my music on and there are sets and reps and everything has a purpose and has a reason. And you go from being calm and relaxed to working really hard and then taking a break. I always liked, I was a sprinter and I always liked sports where you do something intense and then recover from it. Mm -hmm. So just like what the rhythm of weightlifting I really like, I really like that you put the work in and then something happens as a result. Mm -hmm. You can always progress. You can always regress. It doesn't matter how many times in a row you go or how many days you miss. There's always a, a place to return or to have your next workout. And, and, and also all of my sports as a young person, well, almost all of them were team sports. So there was always something nice about having me time <laughs> where it was just my thing. Um, and I think that really fed me over the years as I became a young professional, I really just looked forward to having gym time and also being a, a people helper, being someone who's attending to and listening to other people all the time. It's really a reward. It's really a treat. Um, to have me time where I'm only paying attention to like my breath and my body and, and my thoughts and, and how I feel. And I bet that helps as a mom too, to have oh, that me time. It definitely helps as a mom. I remember that I wanted to go your back own to body. Yes. Yes. I remember I wanted to go back to the gym so bad. My baby had colic and um, so there was a lot, a, a lot, a lot, a lot of crying and just an adjustment and just like your body has been through so much. I just wanted to get back to that relationship with my body. And I remember, um, I remember the, my primary care doctor was like, oh, you wanted your body back? And I, I was like, no, <laughs> this not is like my, <laughs> not like that at all. And I remember my husband one time um, put up like a video of us at the gym together and I was bench pressing and some woman was like, this is horrible. That's too soon for her. She thinks she needs to lose weight and I hate to see women behaving this way. And I just remember being like, she has no idea what she's talking about. I was so enthusiastic to be able to engage with myself in that way. And I just find it to be such a rewarding part of my life um, that I, don't, I didn't experience it that way at all. I know some women want to get their body back or whatever the heck that means, but um, <laughs> that is not where I was coming from. I wish that I was strength training back when I had my babies. I have mm. Actually, my Wow. It was a, a rude entry into parenthood, as you're well aware. <laughs> yeah. I wish, looking back, just hearing this conversation, I've never thought about it. I wish I was strength training at the time when I had little kids. I remember sometimes I would cry, and I remember just thinking, like, please, everybody, stop touching. I'm starting to cry now. Stop touching me. Like, I just want my body. Like, yes. I space like yeah. everybody needed you know like I was nursing and I you know then you know, when I had another one I had a toddler and he's always yeah. touching me and then I've got yeah. the baby and I was just like it would have been really nice to have this space for me and my body to be doing something yes I had nothing to do with anybody else and their needs yeah it would have been great I never thought about it in that way yeah and what that just that visceral experience that you're describing and that you're feeling it's like, there's nothing that can ever prepare you for that. Like no one, even if someone has never had a baby and they could hear you and see you yeah. and be like, okay, you still don't get it, what that don't. means. Um, and so the ability to be in your body and be the master of your body and to move your body in space and to not have to surrender it to the little ones around you who need you, I think was the most, was so centering and empowering for me. Um, and, and I think probably we will always be, but, um, especially at that, you know, becoming a mom and nursing and 
colic and all of that other, all of those shenanigans. <laughs> it was definitely a tool in the toolbox for sure. So what are your current goals? Um, do you have any performance goals that you're working on? What, what do you, what do you think? Oh, that's a good question. Um, well, I do, I do have this thing going on with my hip that I really want to get to go a hundred percent away. And, um, so right now I'm trying to see if I can hang on to this one spin class, which the spinning is aggravating it, but mm. see that if I can use by using PT and corrective exercise and actually by strengthening, um, the muscles that stabilize my hip, if I can get to a place where I can keep the one class and, and also just have stronger, stronger hips and posterior chain and, um, be all the way out of discomfort. So right now that's basically my goal. I'm like the most compliant PT patient on the face of the <laughs> earth. <laughs> I'm like spending a lot of time doing all of these, you know, with bands and, and all of that. And so, I mean, at first, when I first dealt with this, I really, I really kind of resented that I was doing all this like warm up and all of these, but now I've, I've reframed it to like, this is what my training is right now. Um, and that, that has really, helped me a lot. So, and I think too, like I'm 39 years old, I'm, I'm getting ready to turn 40 this year. And I, I also see this developmental change from goals like that are focused on like how much I can pick up or losing a certain amount of weight to like, how can I stay injury free? Mm. How can I feel as fabulous as possible? how can I keep myself healthy now that I'm entering the stage of life where things start to progress faster? Like if there's an issue, you know, it's harder to get out of and you stay in it longer. So I, I think that developmental shift um, is, is kind of pushing me in that direction. So how long have you been dealing with your hip issue? It's been over three years now. Um, and, and, um, at first, you know, at first people were like, oh, do this exercise and that exercise and you should be good. Um, and because my husband is a strength coach and because of our professional lives, there are a lot of um, PTs in our life and just people who have an opinion. So I think I was not taking it very seriously at first, getting people's opinions and just kept, you know, kept really heavy deadlifting and kept spinning three days a week and kind of kept up, kept up, kept up and um, really was not making significant changes. Mm. Um, and so finally this last winter, I was so uncomfortable so much of the time and I had regressed in so many of my exercises um, that I went ahead and had an MRI. And, and actually that was very helpful because it gave me the feedback that was really black and white that I needed to be able to say, okay, I have to make some changes in what I'm doing. And you're, bad, you're doing better now. I'm doing, I'm, I would say I'm like 90 to 95%. Oh, that's so good. Yeah. And so now I'm just focused on, I wanted, I don't want to do anything to go back down, but, and then I also would like to get to a hundred percent. Oh, good. Mm -hmm. I bet you'll get there sooner than you think. That's fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. All right, Lisa, let's do a little bit of a speed round before we wrap up here. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. okay Movies, action or rom-com? Action. Best decade for music? 90s. One meal for the rest of your life, what would it be? You could only eat one thing. Whoa. One <laughs> thing for the rest of my life? One thing, I know, totally unrealistic, but what would it be? Peanut butter. Oh, gosh, yeah. Your favorite <laughs> way to relax? The beach. 
go to the beach. Something you would love to learn how to do in the next five years. Uh, martial art. Very cool. All right, this, this is the question I always end with for people. What's a favorite word? Oh, I love the F word. I don't know if I can say that. <laughs> That's so funny. Actually, the person who came right out and said it, do you know Jennifer Thompson? She's a, a no. powerlifter. Power uh -uh. She actually just this weekend is now an 11-time world um, wow. lifting champion. Anyway, wow. she like came right out and said it. I couldn't stop laughing. She, <laughs> <laughs> everybody loves that word. <laughs> it's every part of speech. It communicates a, an array of emotions, and it's one you know, syllable. I'm going to start re rephrasing my question. I'm going to say, other than the F word. <laughs> All right, Lisa, this has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much. For being here. Oh, thanks for having me on. Yeah. Where can people connect with you if they're, if they're looking to? Okay. So please go to my website, which is drlewisconsulting.com. Um, and on my website, you can see articles I've written, podcasts I've participated in, places where I'll be speaking. Um, and then I also offer a handful of services. So of course I do regular traditional psychotherapy. I'm licensed in the state of Massachusetts so I can serve people in mass. I also provide consultation. So I do online consultations for people who just wanna have maybe one or two focused conversations on specific goals. And then the third component of professionally what I do is I work with fitness professionals um, in a capacity of talking with them about their work and nutrition consultants too, about their work with clients and um, how they can work better with their clients. It's almost like a supervision kind of a role. Um, so that's the primary way. You can also follow me on Instagram, which is Dr. Lewis Consulting. Um, and I'm on Facebook too, just under my name, Lisa Lewis. Awesome. All right, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks so much for being here and listening in to the Fitness Simplified podcast today. I hope you found it educational, motivational, inspirational, all the kinds of ational. <laughs> if you enjoyed it, if you found value in it, it would mean so much to me if you would go ahead and leave a rating and review on whatever platform you are listening to this on. It really does help to get this podcast to other people. Thanks so much.